morning. I want to welcome all of you here this morning. Um, go Chiefs. I'll just say that. And Greg has promised that since the game is so late today that he won't interfere with, with how long he speaks. Right? Can you hear me? <clears throat> I welcome you here this morning in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our theme for today is Believe in Jesus. Along with that theme, we are centering our thoughts on the part of our congregational blessing that has to do with fellowship. I want to thank all of those who agreed to participate in the service today. I'm always awed at how much talent and willingness we have in this congregation. Um, just a couple of changes to the bulletin. Maddie Stoll is sick and at urgent care right now, so if you would offer a prayer for her. And Ellie Traxel has agreed to do her part. And then at the very end, um, the hymn after the sending forth, it's 273, and we'll just sing the refrain. Uh, the word fellowship comes from the Greek, the Greek word koniana, and it is often interchanged with the words sharing, close association, or mutual participation. Um, I especially enjoyed the prayer service this morning. A lot of what was said was right along the lines that I wanted to talk about today. It's truly Christian fellowship whenever Christians share something with other Christians. Does that include recipe swaps, sharing a meal, a carpool, or even a book club? Is it just Christian fellowship only when it happens at church? No, I believe Christian fellowship is any time that we are together. Fellowship can be used to explain the bonds between believers and our Lord. 1 Corinthians 1 and 9 says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Fellowship also involves the way believers help one another often in the context of meeting physical needs. Hospital visits, phone calls, cards, texts, or taking meals. And we talked about that a little bit this morning in our prayer service. The third example of Christian fellowship is probably the one we have in mind when we use the term today. <clears throat> this is the shared living of fellowship for the same purpose. Because of our love for Jesus and other Christians, there is an unspoken understanding that we are on the same team trying to move the ball in the same direction. Greg and I have lived in many different places, and the community of Christ was always the one thing that was familiar whenever we moved. We would find the closest group and become part of it. Everything else could be new to us and foreign and even hard to navigate at times, but the church was something that was constant. Yes, it was new people and new ways of doing things and even some new concepts, but it was still the church. In some places, it was quite a drive to get there, but we still made that commitment. When we moved to New Jersey, I felt like we had arrived in a different world. In the first two months of living there, we had a gas shortage in which you had difficulty getting gasoline if you hadn't traded at a station for a long time and you could only get gas on even or odd days depending on your license plate number. A water shortage and we had brand new sod and plants and we weren't supposed to water them. We did a little. A hurricane, give me a tornado any day, and a teacher strike. We had come from a place where teachers weren't unionized, and so this was very new and scary for us. We also had a new home, and so we had many workmen in, and the way of doing business there, for the most part, was different. Most of them wanted to do things the easiest way. 
We were having new flooring laid in the kitchen and laundry room, and instead of moving the appliances, they wanted to just cut the flooring around them. We had paid extra to have things moved, but when I called the store, they told me that it was customary to give the installers a little more money since the original money didn't go to them. Needless to say, I called Greg at work, and he came home and moved everything so the flooring could be laid properly. Our children were visiting my parents at that time. Mom called and said that I needed to come. Dad had had gallbladder surgery and had developed peritonitis, and I needed to come and get my children. Well, I had the wrong car to get gas that day, <laughs> and I couldn't get a hold of Greg. It was long before cell phones, and I didn't know how I would get gas for the early morning trip to the airport the following day. I was very upset, and one of the workmen came to me and told me that he had a solution for me. If Greg didn't have enough gas in his car and didn't get home in time to get gas, then we could come to his home and he would take gas out of his boat enough for us to get to the airport. He went on to tell me that everything would be okay and he even told me that he had a church that he would invite us to attend with him. And that was the first time <laughs> that I'd felt like, oh, this is gonna be okay. A couple of months ago, we received our congregational blessing after many months of preparation. The part I would like to read to you this morning is as follows. When you gather together, your love of family touches the hearts of God. Your children of all ages bring joy to you and to God, whose love for them exceeds what you can imagine. God yearns for your children of all ages to look into the loving eyes of Jesus and to learn of their belovedness and eternal worth. Continue to share the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel of love of them throughout their years and include them in all aspects of your congregation. May we continue to study our blessing and empower ourselves our families, our congregation, our communities, and our world with these world's words of counsel. Would you please join me in reading the call to worship? Your steadfast love, O God, O Lord, excuse me, extends to the heavens. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. You save humans and animals alike, O oh Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O oh God. All people may take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Let's continue with the singing of hymn number 11.
Would you bow? God, we come together to worship you, to learn the lessons taught by Jesus, and to experience our faith with others. We acknowledge your love for us, love that reaches out to us despite our fears, our wrongdoings, and our perceived worthlessness, and our lack of forgiveness to others. We know in our minds that you see us as yours, and we come together as a group to transfer that knowledge into our hearts. We put aside this time to worship you. We believe in the message of Jesus. God loves us all. To love you is to love others. All people are included in your plan, the stranger, the outsider, and the forgotten. Please join us as we open our hearts and minds to worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I do believe, Lord. No, I do believe. 
Today we send a prayer of the people. God, you are the point of the circle within. Sorry. Which all creation is found. We yearn to connect with the spirit of peace and experience the companionship of your presence in this moment. Help us draw the circle wider to include those we know and love, and even those we struggle to understand and accept. Fill this circle with the gifts of forgiveness, mercy, compassion, and peace. Give us the desire to include all whose paths cross ours into a place where acceptance is offered freely. Let the peace we've dreamed of expand to embrace all your children. We remember all nations, all colors, all faiths, all genders, as we pray today. Within this circle, may we see the other as brother and sister and act as mutual stewards of one another. You call us to live without borders that exclude. Help us to draw that circle wider still. Your world belongs to be whole and in harmony. The dream of peace includes caregiving for the water, earth, air, and all that has life in one great family. You created us with interdependencies Give us mutual respect and tender care for all. Let this be our song. Nothing on your earth stands alone, but lives in peace with all other living things. Draw the circle wide open. May we be blessed by your vision of peace this day. May our minds, hearts, and spirits be wide enough for all to find a home. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Also you yourselves will help those who stand in need of your help. You will administer of your substance to those who stand in need. And you will not suffer that the beggar will put up a request to you in vain and will be turned out to perish. For behold, are we all not beggars? Do we not all depend on the same being, even God, for all the substance which we have, for both food and clothing, and for gold and silver, and for all the riches which we have of every kind?
introduction. <laughs> I do have to admit that this was not Jeannie's idea. This was mine. Um, for those of you who may be interested at 4 o'clock this afternoon and like this service, it will be on my YouTube channel. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook if you like. And if you believe that, I also have a bridge I'd be happy to sell you. <clears throat> There is one thing that's not mistaken, and that is every time that I am invited to, to speak here and sit up here, I am reminded of one of two things, either how horrible the acoustics are up here uh, or the fact that my hearing is getting worse and worse between each occasion. Um, I have to apologize because I did not understand a word that my wife said when she was up here a few minutes ago. And so if I repeat something, you'll have to excuse me for it. But the first thing I need to do before we start is I need to see everyone who ha is the age of eight or under raise their hands. And of that group, I need a volunteer, one volunteer to come up and help me. Do I see a volunteer? I've made it a habit over the years as I've had an occasion to go to Bonner Springs to speak that they're, oh, I got two, all right. That's okay, that's fine, I'm good for that too. There are three or four little children that come to church up there and they are the most well-behaved and attentive kids I have ever seen. They're all brothers and sisters, and so they really don't have any friends uh, to come to church to see, and so they have to sit there for an hour and listen to me. And so what I've taken to doing is paying them uh, for, for one purpose, okay? Can you count? How far can you, can you count? Oh, wait, 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 How much is that? How much is that? How much is this? Okay. And how much is this? Six. Six. I like the way you count. Okay. All right. Your job, okay, is that you've got to look up at that clock. Can you tell time off a clock? Off the clock. Can you know, do you know what time it says up there right now? No. Okay, good. That's even better. All right? 
your job is at 20 minutes after 11, you do this. Okay? If I'm still talking, you do this. Please. Please. Okay? All right? For everybody's sake, don't be late. All right? Okay, you guys can go sit down. Well, that's true, too. Yeah. <clears throat> Let me start by uh, saying that there was no mistaking what you just heard. Elvis Presley singing, I believe. I've made two, I'm guilty of two cardinal sins over the years of preaching. The first was that I mentioned Barry Switzer in church, uh, which we all know is wrong. And the second is Elvis Presley. There are many people who would maintain that neither one of them holds a place uh, in this hour, but I disagree. The recording that Elvis Presley made was made in 1957, which was probably more than, longer than most of you can remember. Um, the original, does anybody know who the original was that made this song? Frankie Lane, which was 1947. So I know that even more of you were not around for that one. But this is probably the most memorable version of this song. And as I was preparing for this morning, as Jeannie mentioned, I too was reminded of many years ago when she and I found ourselves living in New Jersey. We only knew two church people there when we moved. And when I called them to make an inquiry as to where we should attend, I was greeted with a soft but fairly pointed question. What took you so long to call? We found out you were coming a couple of weeks ago. Small world, smaller church. We found ourselves immersed in a small but very supportive congregation of mostly corporate expats who were, like ourselves, transplanted from somewhere else and working in New York City. Over the years we were there, we came to be very dear friends with many who came and went. But the closest of these were a couple that were originally from West Virginia. They were about as much out of place in New York City as Deputy Marshal Sam McLeod, a popular television show in the 1970s. For those of you who aren't aware, Marshall McLeod was from a, a Taos, New Mexico lawman, played by Dennis Weaver, who was loaned to the New York Police Department for seven full television series, seasons, and one full-length movie. The couple's name were Bert and Gwen, and they came to be very, very dear friends. Their daughter babysat our children, Bert fixed everything around his house and ours. We celebrated holidays with them. We took care of each other's children when Hawaii beckoned. And Jeannie and the kids even boarded with them for a month when we were between moves. Some years later, Bert and Gwen moved to Memphis, Tennessee and believed themselves to be in hillbilly heaven. Short of West Virginia, it was the closest thing they could have ever imagined to heaven. Burke took in the rodeos, rode a few bulls, drove his big Chevy Suburban everywhere, and felt completely at home. Gwen traveled to Graceland not the one in Lamoni, every time someone came to town. She loved Elvis and was thrilled when she was able to get the personal license plate Elvis won in Tennessee. Whereas Bert only thought they had moved to heaven, Gwen was absolutely certain when the License Bureau told her she could have it that she had. She knew then what a lifelong faith really meant, and her, her license plate was proof positive 
that all good things come to those that wait. Over the years, I've come to appreciate, but not adore, the works of Elvis Presley. Here was a young man born to nothing, unable to ever read music, scorned by his associates and schoolmates, ever identifying with the marginalized in the world that he lived in, appreciative of the artistry and work of those that had preceded him, willing to cultivate the talent of those that followed, one who understood the hardship of others and accepted it as part of his own journey, one whose words have been memorialized in the hearts of millions. This past week, Jeannie and I were, as she pointed out, in Hawaii. And as I mentioned earlier, I also had admission of sin. I found it hard to pull myself away from 85 degrees, lying in front of a pool, to watch a Chiefs game in the snow and be reminded of what I had to come back for. But Jeannie bought me a Chiefs t-shirt, which I didn't wear. But I told her I would this morning, and I have. But since there's no phone booth for me to change into, I will forego that experience. But while we were there, I had occasion to read the paper one day. And given the fact that Hawaii sits in the middle of the Atlantic, the story that I read happened to be from Australia. And it took place in a town called Parks in Western Australia, where the annual Parks Elvis Festival was taking place. Originating in 1991 with a few dozen fans and worshipers, it has grown to an event that now saw more than 27,000 people attend a, a week-long event filled with music. The festivities included six church services that, included, that incorporated the many religious and gospel works that Elvis recorded or inspired by his own work. Interestingly, Elvis never toured Australia. He never vacationed in Australia. He never mentioned Australia. He never knew anyone from Australia. A man whose life was relatively short, but filled with adoration and accomplishment by those who knew of him. A man whose name, persona, music, and faith have become deeply embedded in popular culture across much of the world. When asked to name the, the first American that comes to mind, more Australians will say Elvis Presley than anyone else. In contrast, when they are asked the name of the first Brit to come to mind, they do not say Paul McCartney. Instead, they say Winston Churchill. When asked an Italian, they will say Mussolini. When they say Russia, they say Joseph Stalin. When asked of Australian, they say Crocodile Dundee. There is no denying that the world is a much different place because of Elvis Presley. His impact has far outstripped his life. Few people really knew him personally. But thanks to technology, millions of people around the world believe him to be the greatest musical performer in history. His reputation and his voice live on through generations and generations of followers, just like those thousands that trekked to Parks Australia to feel the embrace of his music and the companionship of other believers like themselves. Many of those people are devotees like Gwen, unable to accept his human fallibility his insecurity, his intensity, their impressions of him 
almost divine. Their belief in him almost spiritual. But simply believing does not necessarily make something real or make it true. I've shared the story before of when I was young and believed that I could fly, only to jump off the roof of a garage and quickly face the reality that I could not. In that brief moment, believing was replaced by knowing. As you're aware, the theme this morning is believe in Jesus. While the statement might be viewed as informative and even instructive, it cannot be considered grammatically correct. It leaves the reader with the unanswered question, believe what? Interestingly, that's a question that has plagued theologians and divided Christians for almost 2,000 years and still today remains a topic of debate amongst religious leaders. Are we to believe that Jesus was wholly divine at birth and therefore incapable of human error? Are we to believe that Jesus was simply born a man and through devotion and dedication achieved near perfection? Are we to believe that not only Jesus was born of a virgin, but also his mother? Are we to believe that Jesus came forth into the world to die and absolve those who came before and are to come of all their sins? Are we to believe that Jesus was able to perform numerous miracles during his ministry, unchallenged by Roman or Judean law, which regarded all such acts as sorcery, witchcraft, and paganism? Are we to believe that Jesus was an uncommitted man in a world where marriage was required, a peace-loving man in a world that knew only war, an all-forgiving man in a world where judgment was summary and punishment cruel, a vegan who merely lacked tinted glasses to be mistaken for John Lennon, or are we to believe that he's already returned to live amongst us in Memphis? The list of such questions goes on and on. The answers can only be found by each of us individually in the course of our life. If I were to include all the things that we are asked to believe that have been developed through the centuries about Jesus, I could write a companion to the best-selling best book, 101 Ways to Use Duct Tape. The point is that so much of what we are told of Jesus to believe about Jesus, but we know so little. And so we are left to pick and choose those things that we find comfortable in our own belief system, things that make sense to us, things that give us comfort. And at the end of the day, each of us have a different set For me, it comes down to one thing. And it's simply reflected in the life of Jesus himself. If we strip away all the veneer and the varnish that's been added over the centuries, I've concluded many years ago that Jesus did not come into the world to die on our behalf and absolve us of all of our sins. Instead, he came to show us how to live with each other and, more importantly, offer us the opportunity to save ourselves from our own destruction, a destruction of our own making. In the embodiment of Jesus was a message, and that message was from God, just as it had been for the Israelites coming out of Egypt generations before. A simple acknowledgement of God in their life was not sufficient to form a covenant. 
the people of Moses needed to know that know God and in knowing him embody all that stood for their life. They had to attune their lives with God's purposes. And those of you who are old enough to remember Elvis' rendition of I Believe, there was another popular tune at that time by a group called the Teddy Bears. Anybody remember that name? The Teddy Bears were headed by a man named Phil Spector who also was a, later on became a producer of many of John Lennon's songs. And Phil Spector was very much influenced by the works of Elvis Presley. And they did a song in 1958 that was called, To Know Him Is To Love Him. And you may remember the words, no, no, I can't sing. Know him is to love, love, love him. And I do, and I do, and I do. The key operative word for Phil Spector in that song was I do, which implies an action. In the mind of God, believing is simply not enough. Believing is not God's intent for his creation. Believing is merely the beginning a starting point, an expression of our willingness to merge the sacred and secular elements of our life and fully dedicate our life to his purpose. That teaching is the foundation of the restoration movement. There are countless examples in the pages of the Doctrine and Covenants of common people like you and me who have sought to replace beliefs for knowledge. Most people don't realize that instruction given in the Doctrine and Covenants is generally directed at a single individual or a small number of individuals who have sought God's presence in their life. I'm reminded of a passage in the Doctrine and Covenants that took place in October of 1830. It's recorded as section 32. In it, it was given in response to two, the request of two people, Ezra Thayer, a man in his 30s who came from the area of upstate New York, and another man by the name of Northrop Sweet. Both were family men. Sweet was a little bit younger. Each engaged in enterprise within their area. And they had attended several meetings where they had heard the Book of, of, of the Book of Mormon. Prior to issuance of Section 32, both of these young men had professed their belief in the Book of Mormon, in the work of the church, and the testimonies of those that they had encountered throughout their journey in the previous months. On October 30th, both were baptized by Parley Pratt and subsequently confirmed by Joseph Smith. That same day, they were both called to serve the church and told to make preparations to do so. Early in the spring of 1831, a few months after their baptism, along with their families, they moved to Kirtland, Ohio, and they settled amongst the saints that had moved there from New York in the months before. The bond that Thayer and Sweet shared on that day of their baptism grew. On June 3rd of 1831, 
There was ordained a high priest and sweet an elder. And again, a common service of ordination. That same day, they were both directed to travel together on behalf of the church to the east and carry the message of the restoration to those that were awaiting them. For several days, they made preparation. They shared the well wishes of others in their community, settled their personal affairs, and made provisions for the welfare of their families while they were absent. Finally, the day came for them to leave, and Sweet refused to go. When asked his reason for not going, he simply said, I don't believe anymore. He went on to explain that upon arrival in Kirtland, he had spent time with another man by the name of Wyman Clark, another recent convert to the church, who taught all who would hear that he too had been visited by angels and told that he was the real prophet. Sweet and several other members, I got it. Come up here. This will buy me five more minutes. Come on. Come on down. He went on to explain that upon arrival in Kirtland, he had spent time with Wyman Clark, who taught, that all, taught all that he too had been visited by an angels and that he was the real prophet. Sweet and several others believed Clark and renounced their membership in the church, but remained in Kirtland with their newfound friends and was ever willing to share how he had been misled in his support of the restoration. In contrast, Ezra Thayer went on his mission, traveled with the first group of saints to Missouri, continued with his in his involvement with the restoration for the rest of his life. Following the death of Joseph Smith, Thayer remained faithful to the principles and teachings of the restoration. Affiliated for a while with the Brighamites, later the Strangites, and finally with the reorganization, where he remained active until his death. In the last years of his life, Thayer was asked to recount his experience with the church. By this time, he found himself living within reasonable proximity to his old friend, Northrop Sweet, in eastern Michigan. When asked to account for the different paths that he and Sweet had followed, Thayer related an experience that he had had in the fall of 1830, immediately prior to his encounter with the Restoration Movement, where he stood in the solitude of woods near his home, alone for a moment, and where Thayer encountered God. In a vision, a man appeared before him in the trees, and without speaking, presented him with a roll of paper and a trumpet. Thayer immediately took both of those things in his hands, in his vision, and held them. The man told him to blow the trumpet. Thayer did, and found it a most beautiful sound, although he knew nothing of how to play the instrument. The visitor then turned and left, saying no more, but leaving both the paper and the trumpet with Thayer. The following week, Thayer and Sweet presented themselves before the assembled church, professed their faith in the restoration, and asked for baptism. When Joseph concluded his confirmation of Thayer and Sweet, he indicated to those that were gathered there that he had more instruction for the church and for them which he proceeded to bring forth and was later codified into the Doctrine and Covenants as Section 32. 
30 years later, Thayer was able to repeat the contents of Section 32 to his interviewer from memory. He needed no text. It was embedded in his consciousness as much as his DNA. He closed his eyes, and when he reached Section 32, 1, paragraph C, he emphasized the words, For verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye are called to lift up your voices as with the sound of a trump. to declare my gospel unto a crooked generation. Thayer then pointed out that those words of assurance were meant for both he and Sweet. And he immediately recognized them from his encounter in the wilderness. When Thayer spoke of this encounter, encounter to Sweet on that day, Sweet dismissed it as nothing more than a dream. But Thayer didn't think so then, and he didn't think so 30 years later. In his opinion, that encounter in the wilderness only served to affirm God's abiding presence in the world. The worth of even the smallest of his creation and the importance of the work to which they were called. In Thayer's opinion, the crucial difference between himself and Sweet was that Sweet's conviction and commitment was limited to only what he believed, whereas Thayer's convictions were grounded in what he knew and what could never be discounted never dismissed, and more importantly, never denied. As, Thayer's note, as Thayer noted, God's abiding presence in the world affords us each the opportunity and the means to know more about God's hopes, his dreams, and his expectations for all of his creation. Like Thayer, we are called never to be content to simply believe, but always to seek to know. A wise woman who was traveling in the mountains found a precious stone in a stream. The next day she met another traveler who was hungry, and the wise woman opened her bag to share her food. The hungry traveler saw the precious stone and asked the woman to give it to him. She did so without hesitation. The traveler left, rejoicing in his good fortune. He knew the stone was worth enough to give him security for a lifetime. But a few days later, he came back to return the stone to the wise woman. I've been thinking, he said, I know how valuable this stone is, but I give it back in the hope that you can give me something even more precious Give me what you have within you that enabled you to give me this stone. Would our offering collectors come down, please? My Father, bless us in our thoughts and our generosity and our giving. Amen.
Would you please put your finger in number 273? We are sent forth to be builders of fellowship, to meet life and all it has in store for us, to work together as a congregation, to nourish, to nurture our members, especially our children, to draw the circle wider. Go in peace. Amen. Thank you.